Welcome back to the 90th percentile of Baseball America podcast. This is your host, Jeff Ponce. We're back for another week. In episode one, we sat down with legendary pitching and throwing coach Tom House, talked a little bit about his illustrious career. We're back at it again this week as we sit down with Chris Langan, the pitching coordinator for Driveline. Obviously, Driveline, one of the more famous organizations out there right now when it comes to training baseball players, particularly pitchers, very, very divisive. There's been a lot of debate about their training methods. Let's talk to Chris. Let's learn a little bit more about what they're doing, what they're evaluating, and the type of metrics that are being used. My goal here is uh, to have you come in today with very little knowledge of analytics, measurements of pitch movement, and have you leave today with sort of a rudimentary understanding. So when we use some of these terms on shows like this going forward, or in a lot of my articles on Baseball America, you'll be able to understand. Should be another great conversation. Let's jump in with Chris. All right, welcome back to the show. I have this week's guest joining us. I'm very excited about this one. Chris Langan, who is the pitching coordinator from the infamous Driveline. Um, Chris, welcome to the show. By the way, you can find Chris on Twitter at LangenTots13. That's L-A-N-G-I-N-T-O-T-S-13. He has a great Twitter. You should definitely follow that. Chris, welcome to the show. Tell us a little bit about who you are. Introduce yourself to our listeners. Awesome. Well, first, thanks for the warm introduction. I really appreciate that. Um, so basically, I'm pitching coordinator at Driveline. I've been up here for about 26, 27 months now. Um, some of my background grew up, uh, wasn't a great player, but I played in the state of Nebraska. So at that time, 84 out of my hand to the hitters probably looked like 90 with what they had seen at that talent level. So grew up uh, just a dad, really. Uh, so Baseball was very important to our family. There wasn't a lot of fruits and vegetables being eaten. Um, and baseball was basically probably overblown, to be honest, relative to what the normal family would consider important. Um, played some college ball freshman year. I, again, threw like 83, 85. Couldn't get anybody out. That's really how I got introduced to driveline. Um, came back the following year, did some of the driveline protocol when it was very early. This was like 2016. Um, and started getting up, you know, into the high 80s um, from there. That second year at JUCO, I then tore my ACL, transferred back to a D2 school in my hometown. Um, and then the following year, had some arm issues and basically had to retire after that. So um, sort of part of what got me into coaching and into driveline was being a poor player and then also some injuries. I wanted to kind of eventually, again, I talked about how much baseball was important to me when I was younger. So wanted to stay in the game. It was kind of my identity. Um, and honestly, very thankful that a place like driveline exists because I remember the first time I tried to get into college coaching, I was sending it sent out like 100 applications and heard back from one or two schools and took a junior college job for 4000 bucks a year. So uh, if driveline didn't exist, uh, I'm pretty sure I'd be doing something else because I don't really have the playing background to, uh, you know, have much merit. So sure. it's kind of some background. Sure. But that's what it's all about, right? Is uh, finding that opportunity and what you know and, you know, making the most of that. I'm interested to learn a little bit more. So. When you started doing some of the driveline programs, like what time frame are we talking year-wise at this point? So this was after 2016 summer is when I really went after it. Um, and this was, uh, again, I don't know how much background the average listener is going to have, but this was basically when like driveline was more or less, you read this book called Hacking the Kinetic Chain, or you like come into the facility. Well, I just read the book at the time and it had workouts in there. And basically I did those workouts. And to be honest, in hindsight, they're probably a little extreme. Again, we kind of constantly change our protocols here, but it was a lot of high intent throwing to say the least. Uh, awkwardly enough, my arm kind of felt better than it ever had. Um, but I think it was more of more a part of the fact I had never really done any type of training that intensive before. But um, that's basically, you know, 2016 driveline, which is very different from 2020, 2021 driveline. So again, that's a lot of the, a lot of the reason too, I kind of had some luck in getting this job is that I kind of started doing the training at the right time. Whereas now there's a lot more people who know what's going on. So when they apply the, you know, the base talent level of understanding the program is much higher than maybe it was two or three years ago. Yeah. And I, and I was going to ask, and I know we're going a little bit off script here from what we had initially planned, but I find it interesting and digging a little bit here, I think is valuable. Um, are there any things that 
and you, you mentioned it, but like looking back, is there anything specifically that when you started working there, you were like, hey, you like that you challenged a little bit? You were like, hey, I don't know about this or something that you even did that you look back on and you're like, I learned that this doesn't work because of that. Right. I mean, to be honest, I was, uh, I was a little bit of a bandwagoner. You know, I actually went into Triline just thinking it was kind of perfect. And, you know, to, to a degree, I still feel that like I hold them. I mean, obviously I work for them, so you know I'm gonna I'm not gonna say anything stupid here. But what I will say is working for driveline actually probably progressed me. Uh it basically allowed me to see maybe some of the things that we were doing two years ago and look back and be like, hey, that was kind of dumb, or like, hey, maybe we didn't value this enough. You know what I mean? Whereas to be honest, before I worked here, it was almost kind of like whatever driveline said, I just went with. You know what I mean? So to actually it sounds kind of counterintuitive, but to be in the trenches, so to speak, or to be within the company. Uh, you kind of see a lot of case studies of athletes. Some don't progress. A lot of them do, of course, but it makes you kind of think, hey, how can we have gone about that differently? And when you're inside it, it's actually, in my estimation, or at least in my case, uh, was kind of a better way to to grow as a coach and to also grow the company into some of the new things we're doing. So let's let's back it up a little bit for those that are out there that may not be as familiar with Driveline. I kind of assume everybody is at this point. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, just, just in terms of this books and, you know, uh, front office jobs and, and a lot of, uh, you know, debate regarding training and, and that sort of thing. Um, but what sort of are the, the pillars or the foundational beliefs of driveline in terms of how you approach athletes that you do work with? And I guess you can tie that in a little bit to, to what your day-to-day activities are and sort of, you know, how you implement that. Sure. So, I mean, the biggest thing with the drive, there's two big things with drive on that anybody who works there or anybody who's familiar with it will tell you one, you work really hard. Uh, I mean, it's still kind of in the startup, obviously we've got a lot more following, et cetera, but I mean, you work really hard here. Uh, people, people, a lot of the people who get hired here, I think come from backgrounds that maybe didn't, they didn't really think they'd ever have an opportunity like this. Um, so that's like kind of the main thing with the identity with the com- company. And then two, it's just gotta be data driven. Again, we're not, there's certain things you can't quantify, um, but the idea is like, hey, if you can, we really want to do this, you know, because it makes things more scalable. And again, we, ju- we just don't want to get into this idea of like, hey, whoever is the most credible at the company, they can just like dictate whatever we do or they're always right. You know what I mean? Um, from there with training athletes, we really have uh, basically like our baseline tests where we're going to try to figure out their arsenal. uh their force plate data, which would just be like their strength assessment, and then their mechanics. And again, all of that is objective. We have the biomechanics lab. And then basically from there, we can kind of rank the athlete at those three categories and converse with them and discuss, hey, here's where we think you should spend your time and your training, because at the end of the day, you only have so much uh, training economy to utilize. And that's kind of how we attack things. Uh, There's certainly other elements to it in terms of like risk reward. Uh, one, One of the probably the biggest thing with driveline that people kind of are like, Hey, I don't know about that. It's kind of the risk reward aspect of somebody's a double a minor league or 26 throwing 93, at least in my estimation, I don't want to speak for the company. That's a guy we're trying to like, we'll take on a little injury risk hypothetically, if we have to, to try to get that player to a point where he can be a quad a player or fight for some major league service time, you know? So those are kind of the core things we do. And then some of the other things are a little bit more, the things I mentioned at the end are a little bit more contextual to my beliefs. But at the end of the day, that's kind of how we think, you know what I mean, is, is kind of taking all of that context into consideration and kind of understanding that. Well, and I think it touches on um, a fundamental misconception that often happens really with any training program. Um, but I think particularly with, you know, driveline and other programs that are similar. And that's and we just, I mentioned this off air, but you know, some of the, the, the one size fits all approach that I think people think. Like I can remember being in scouting sections in the Cape two years ago, prior to the pandemic, back in 2019, and somebody seeing, you know, a particular operation and being like, that's a driveline operation. <laughs> and I always thought that was funny to think that way, because then there were other guys that I knew had trained with driveline that were really smooth mechanically, you know, that were pitching in the same game and they're not getting that same sort of label. So right. I think it's interesting because you may have, guys that maybe aren't as good at athletes or just whatever it is. And we'll get into some of that stuff in a minute, but you're applying based on those tests, you're applying different philosophies and different approaches to different athletes, depending upon what their strengths are. Correct. 
Right. Yeah. Some some guys aren't like some guys will come in and have a perfect arm action, uh, and they might be weak on the force plate data. So, I mean, even the other day we had a kid. We just said, "Hey, you don't need to throw plyos anymore," you know, which is kind of our big seller. But at the end of the day, like we're like the company is they tell us like, "Hey, you're incentivized to get the athletes better, not to follow a certain script." So, um, yeah. I mean, look, we're going to deal with all kinds of athletes that are going to have all kinds of things they need to work on. Um, the reality is that if a better athlete comes in, uh, that's like just really good mechanically. It doesn't mean we made them good mechanically. It doesn't mean the plyos did anything. You know what I mean? So, I mean, when you start to build, we've had thousands of athletes come in the doors. You're going to have a guy who who goes out there and looks horrible mechanically. You're going to guy who goes out there and looks freaking phenomenal mechanically. And again, we probably don't deserve credit for either of those two cases, you know, but the, the idea is that it's very individual individualized to what the athlete needs so it's not like drivelines say you throw a four seamer or you don't you know you don't throw a sinker like we take all of that context into account and kind of try to fit the athlete's strengths or when developing them try to attack their weaknesses perfect well said so let's transition a little bit i wanted to bring you on talk a little bit about this we'll build up in this conversation over the next you know 20 30 minutes or so um but I've taken on the approach of like writing a lot of more analytically focused stuff, especially in terms of breaking down data on pitch movement from prospects and college players, just to get a better idea and compare arsenals in a real, like manageable, you know, like tangible way to like major leaguers, right? Like I feel like that's been one of the biggest developments with Statcast in the major league level is we understand why guys are good better than we used to. And a lot of that is these different data terms that I think are scary for a lot of people. I've tried to define them myself. I'm not going to sit here and say that I have the experience that Chris does or that I can necessarily say it as eloquently as Chris probably will. So I thought it was valuable to maybe start with the different types of spin and then sort of build into the different metrics that you might be looking at with different pitches. And then we'll talk some different pitch mix, you know, some different pitch types and, you know, sort of what um, the ideal maybe movement or or ca characteristics that we're looking for with a four seamer versus a two seamer, a curveball, a slider, etc. Um, so I was going to say, why don't we talk a little bit about the different types of spin, transverse spin, gyroscopic spin? What are they? What's the difference? And why does it matter? Sure. So basically, everybody—I mean, not everybody, of course—but for the most part, the two that are most popularized right now are going to be fastball velocity and RPMs. So a lot of people understand that there is an RPM value, but they kind of misdiagnose is that just because the ball spins a lot doesn't necessarily mean it's going to have a lot of movement. Um, and that's where like what you were talking about, the transverse, useful, um, active spin, all of these terms are kind of synonymous. So if we take the exa an example, actually, I was looking at the other day, um, J Josh Hader and Aaron Bummer both have on their slider 2,500 RPMs. But Hader gets about 18% of those RPMs. So you're looking at, you know, less than 500. Whereas uh, Bummer gets about like 80% of it. So he's got, you know, 2,000 about. Bummer's moves five times as much horizontally as Josh Hader's does. So useful spin is basically going to be of that RPMs that they create, that raw value. What percentage of that is either backspin, sidespin, topspin? And basically to figure that out, you just look at the spin direction or the proportion of vertical um, and horizontal break. That's like kind of the, the basics of that, so to speak. Backspin, that's going to be the one that basically fights gravity more. That's most predominant in a four-seam fastball. The ball doesn't technically rise, of course, but relative to the hitter's perception, they're going to see you know thousands of pitchers throughout their career. A guy who can really backspin it and generate a lot of lift or carry, that ball is going to kind of appear like it's rising. Um, so that's backspin, sidespin. You can obviously go either the arm sideway or the glove sideway. Um, that basically, the more sidespin you have, the more you can get the ball to move laterally in either direction, basically. Um, and that's going to be most predominant in sliders and sinkers or changeups. And then you've got topspin. Basically, it's the exact opposite of backspin. So that's most predominant in curveballs. And the more topspin you have, generally, the tougher it is to throw the pitch hard. It's a little bit easier for guys who are over the top to get to that. Same with backspin. Um, and that that's basically just going to make the ball move downward. Um, so those are kind of the three types of spin. And then the one that kind of domes people up and is a little bit more difficult to explain is gyroscopic spin. Um, without getting too technical, because gyrospin can technically lead to movement, it more or less, the more gyrospin you have on average, 
that's basically not going to create movement. I think that in the early goings of understanding this stuff, that's the best way to understand gyrospin, even though it's not technically correct. But that's going to generally be on that slider. Um, most sliders are going to have, you know, predominantly gyrospin, to be honest. So the basic terms, raw RPMs, 2,500 used as an example, the active spin of the pitch, 25% would be low, uh, you know, 100% would be something like a fastball. That's what percentage is going to be useful spin. Um, and then the remainder of that spin is going to just be gyroscopic spin. Yeah, and I always use sliders when I'm trying to explain like gyroscopic spin to people. But the problem with that is then you get sweepers, which have a higher rate of transverse spin. Hence, like you were talking about, you know, with uh, 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 Bummer's cur uh, um, slider versus haters, right? But let's go a step further because I'm interested in to, to hear this from your perspective. It's easy from a rudimentary perspective to think of gyroscopic spin as spin that doesn't contribute to movement, but that's not case. The case, go a little bit deeper there and confuse everybody <laughs> because I'm interested to hear this explanation in a way that probably um, you know, apply, like applies more in, in actuality. Sure. One of those cases when gyroscopic can create movement and what type sure. of movement is different than you know what you would see more or less with like vert up and down you know side to side right so to be honest i am not like if you wanted to really interview somebody for this topic barton smith would be the main guy all right uh, but, <laughs> but what we're getting into is basically seam shifted wake for the exactly. most part when we're talking about this type of gyro spin um basically the, the best way i can explain it is that out of the hand we can detect here's what percentage of active spin is on the baseball, right? And a good person to look at, a guy we trained, a guy I trained, Caleb Thielbar, he's a reliever for the Twins, maybe the, not like the most notable guy ever. Mm -hmm. But if you look at his Savant data, his slider, the active spin is 38%, okay? And the average slider in that data has about 35 to 40%. And the average slider moves about five inches laterally. Well, he's got that active spin, his moves 15 inches laterally. Mm -hmm. So- He's picking up basically when he throws the ball based off the orientation, um, the seams, some of those things, basically the grip in a sense, um, the way he throws it basically out of the hand, it'll come out somewhat like a slurve. Mm -hmm. But as it actually travels to the plate, that gyro spin starts to turn into transverse spin or useful spin as it turns to the plate. And it'll actually kind of take on some additional side spin mm -hmm. um, and the axis will actually start to raise a little bit for him. Um, so that's, kind of the domed up stuff we're discussing. Sure. Uh, so to speak, if you really want to go down the rabbit hole, we've got a couple blogs, but yeah, you definitely, that's like the most important thing for sweepers from my, from what I have looked at. It also allows you to throw the pitch harder because um, the more you try to get around the ball, generally the more ticks you have to take off. So those pitchers that have that seam shifted wake and can influence movement without just directly applying different spin uh, or like transverse spin, they're going to generally see their pitches play up. And another thing, uh, the movement, the way the movement gets to that point is probably a bit more deceptive. So say he hypothetically threw the same pitch, it's about 80 to 81 with 15 inches of lateral, lateral break. If he just spin induced all of that, it probably wouldn't be as good as if it takes like the unique route it does where mm -hmm. out of the hand, it looks like something different than when it kind of, uh, we look at like the observed metrics afterwards. And it's, yeah, I think I wrote about one a couple of weeks ago, Bailey Falter's fastball is kind of like that, uh, where it's, it's unique. It shouldn't move the way it does from his release. And then what the tilt is versus what it actually is. And if you look at the, you know, the observed spin versus, you know, what it actually is, it's kind of unique. Um, so yeah, that's, that's really good. I'm glad that we touched on that. And I think because some seam shifted wake was such a popular topic over the last 12 months, it's important for us to kind of, at least to find that how it ties sure. into everything else. I guess let's let's go to the types of move, how we measure movement. So this is something I became very familiar with um, in scouting sections in the Cape and then at minor league games with a TrackMan system right there in front of me. And you're picking up IVB, you're picking up HB uh, with certain systems, you're picking up VAA as well. Um, all different, VA, IVB, HB obviously have some you know correlation in terms of the different types of movement. Talk to me a little bit about those and the sort of things that you're looking at when you're pulling those off the systems. 
Sure. So induced vertical break is just, I mean, it basically sounds what it is. Uh, but the bi that biggest thing to know is a positive number um, is going to be like the ball is more backspun um, or is fighting gravity more, whereas a negative number, that's going to be the top spin. Um, I guess another thing to discuss is we're talking about short form movement here. So again, no, there, if you throw fastball, that's 100 miles an hour with 22 inches of vertical break, that pitch is still going to drop, like, you know, relative to when it's released, it'll still drop due to gravity um, and some other elements. But when we look at short form, it's just looking at basically what is the pitch doing relative to a spinless ball. Um, so basically, again, to the hitter's perception, 20 inches of vertical break, the average four seamer at the big league level has about 16 and a half. So that ball is going to fight gravity a bit more. Um, they're going to going to kind of swing underneath that a bit. Top spin again, average curveball has about uh, 10 to 11 inches of vertical break. That's just average of downward vertical action. Um, and then most sliders are basically right in the middle vertically at, at around zero. Uh, there's a lot of variation there, but for the most part, if you look at the average, it'll be at zero. Um, and changeups are vertically. It's always kind of contextual to the fastball. A guy who's more over the top. Uh, especially if he's throwing a true changeup, he's going to have a lot tougher time kind of generally influencing that spin direction to get that uh, vertical break to be like zero. So if he's got 20 inches of carry, if he can even get that thing to nine or eight to the hitter, that's going to give a lot of vertical separation. So that's kind of the induced vertical movement. Uh, and we'll talk about later, we'll talk about like the different types and kind of where we expect them to be. Horizontal movement from a right-handed perspective, that would be if they impart arm side run, that would be a positive number. And if they got sweep, that would be a negative number. Um, and, and that one's pretty intuitive as well. But basically, the average slider has about six inches of horizontal movement laterally. So glove side, that would be negative six, uh, whereas the average sinker has about 16 inches of arm side run. So it would be positive 16 from a right-handed perspective. And then, and then in terms of handedness with pitchers, sometimes those numbers are reversed. You know, if a lefty versus a righty, negative versus positive. Right. Um, so the the next one I wanted to to sort of mention too was was VAA uh, and what that because it's become a, a hot topic. You know, I know Alex Chamberlain has done a fair amount of work publicly on on FanGraphs on it. I talk about it a lot. It became a really hot topic last year with Jack Leiter in particular on in sort of. You know the amateur circles because he was some somewhat of a unicorn in that sense. Talk to me about that and how much more important that's become, particularly with fastballs in, in recent years. Sure. So I'll, I'll give somewhat of a hot take in that I think I think so. Too many people kind of try to learn vertical approach angle when they can almost kind of reverse engineer it from looking at a pitcher's fastball velocity, their vertical break, um, their release height. Mm -hmm. their extension, and then where do they throw the ball? So I think the biggest thing vertical approach angle is going to show you is that throwing a fast four-seam fastball up in the zone is good, and throwing a four-seam fastball up in the zone with a lot of velocity is good, and with a lot of ver vertical break, and ideally you do it from a lower arm slot. Um, so that's kind of, uh, to be honest, like when I talk to athletes, we will mention that for sure, but I do think you can kind of reverse engineer the concepts pretty simply uh, from looking at, again, hey, this is basically saying the flatter the pitch is, uh, the better outcomes we're typically going to see in a four-seam fastball, especially in advantage counts. But to answer, to answer it more technically, basically think of it as the opposite of attack angle. So when a pitcher or when a hitter swings, um, if they were to swing downward, that would be like negative attack angle. If they were to swing upward, that would be a positive attack angle. A pitch that, uh, basically the uh, flat pitch, that would be zero degrees is essentially impossible for vertical approach angle. But the best way to do that, if you throw from a six foot release height, would basically to be throw it over the backstop, like throw mm -hmm. it as high as possible because you don't have to descend the pitch at all. Right. Um, due to the constraints of the strike zone where it's vertically, it's going to depend on the hitter a bit, some umpire bias, but it generally won't get the, the highest vertical strike you can probably get is like 3.4 feet uh, in terms of like getting a cold strike. If it's even that, that might be too high. Um, and if a pitcher releases the pitch from a six foot release height, he has to descend that ball into the constraints of the strike zone. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's why people don't throw with a flat approach angle. Um, and that's also why guys with lower release heights, if they have the same carry, they have the same vertical break. They don't have to descend the ball as much into those constraints of the strike zone. Mm -hmm. um, and that's generally where most of the value is in terms of like numbers, anything, if you can get flatter than like negative four degrees, that's generally really good. Um, and then as you basically descend it more and more into the bottom of the strike zone, uh, regardless of 
again, it'll help if you throw harder, if you have more vertical, but uh, at that point, you know, if you shoot low enough in the zone, it's pretty much impossible to have a great vertical approach angle. So I didn't maybe do the best job of technically explaining that, but I think the main thing is like what it tells us is, hey, this is kind of a summary of one, you need to, uh, another thing I didn't even touch on, you need to contextualize it to like the upper third of the strike zone because some of the dudes with the best vertical approach angles are going to be dudes who have no clue where the ball is going and are throwing it over everybody's heads. You know what I mean? So what I would say, you contextualize it to the top third of the zone. um, And what you're probably going to find is the guys who have the best vertical approach angles are going to have that combination, velocity, vertical break, and then a lower release side, or they could just have velocity, a normal release side and a ton of vertical break. Yeah, so, and the, the amount of spin efficiency, spin efficiency you're going to have in the four seam certainly impacts it well. But like guys like Degrom, Cole, they're within that you know four point one four degrees sort of area um, that you know you're you're typically targeting, and right. you know, and then sometimes it's what makes you know fastballs unique, like a Josh Hader or whatever from that right. particular slot. The efficiency that he gets doesn't really make a lot of sense. He doesn't have to have a 24, 2600 RPM four seamer for it to work, right? the fact that he gets spin efficiency and some of these other things that all kind of come together one last thing i'll say before we jump into pitch types and and you know what you're looking for at least in an idealistic sort of perspective um how important when and you may say i don't even think about this but guys that pronate versus guys that that are subnation profiles how important is that like initially in terms of like all right you can do this you're probably not going to be this though in terms of like a, a changeup in particular, I think is where it probably comes up the most. But sure. once with fastballs, guys that cut versus guys that have higher efficiency, sometimes it's it's impacted by that. Sure. No, I, I actually look at that a lot, to be honest with you, because it gives you, again, we've got a limited amount of time sometimes in the lab uh, or the pitch design lab when you're designing pitches. Um, what I will say, we're starting to track just about everything we can to try to like collect data and narrow down our focus. But um, basically, yeah, if a guy can pronate really well, Typically, the characteristics you would see there is the ability to truly turn over a changeup or just like really high spin efficiency on the fastball. Um, whereas a guy who's maybe more supination prone, they're going to generally have a little bit, a bit of natural cut on their fastball. But as a result, it's going to be right if they're sorry, I, this is a podcast, so I won't give any visuals. But if they're naturally already on the side of the ball, for them to just get a little bit further to the side of the ball, they're going to be able to impart either a lot more sweep on their slider or a lot more velocity. You know what I mean? So their glove side offerings are generally going to be a lot better. And where it really comes into play, to be honest with you, is uh, a guy who throws a four seam and let's say it's got like, eight, you know, 75, 80 percent active spin. And it's got only like 14, 15 inches of vertical break, which would be below average for a four seamer. He might be a guy if he hasn't tried a sinker before. You just throw it in his hands. You give him either a true sinker grip, grip or a one seam grip. He might pick up some of that seam shifted weight just mm-hmm. naturally. Um, so there's things like that. Same thing can actually be said with a changeup. Sometimes guys like that, they might just throw them normal. Like you, you don't try to overpronate them. You let them kind of lean into their natural efficiency and they'll pick up some uh, basically non-magnus movement to the arm side with their changeup. So those are, to be honest with you, those are things that are extreme. I'm very crucial with them. Um, one of the best examples I'll give you is if a pitcher throws a curveball and a fastball and his curveball is like 78 with a good amount of depth and a good amount of glove side action, and his fastball is, say, like 92, but he doesn't throw a slider, uh, that's telling you right there, hey, we draft that guy. I don't know who's in charge of his development, but he's going to be able to throw a slider. Like, there's no way you generate that type of downward and glove side action on your curveball and just don't have a slider in your arsenal. You know what I mean? So those are examples of where you can kind of infer that type of stuff. Interesting. All right, let's go on to the different pitch types. Because I think this is interesting just to get people thinking about you know, what's ideal versus what isn't because we get so caught up, I think for a lot of people publicly with velocity and with spin rates. And there's often times where there's fastballs that are 91 to 94 that are just better than a guy that sits 97 to 99. And we can't figure it out. But I think there's a lot of reasons for that. You know, a lot of the reason is stuff like this. So when you're looking at an ideal four seamer, you know, what are some of the, the characteristics you're looking for? Um, what are some of the things that when you see maybe a less efficient or or a four-seamer that you can fix? What are some of the things you're like, we can fix this on? I'm kind of interested just digging into each pitch and sort of what you're looking for and then what you can and can't fix. 
I guess. Sure. Okay. Yeah. I'll start with kind of the fantasy land where we're not like taking into like context what's reasonable. Uh, with a four seamer, obviously, I mean, obviously, you want to throw it as hard as possible. Um, but ideally, vertically, you want to get basically as much as much carry as you possibly can. And again, that's typically going to come from higher slot pitchers. Uh, but again, if you can do it from a lower slot, like I put out some of those threads, if you're a guy who has like a five foot five release height, you don't have to get, you know, the average is 16 and a half, but the average for people with that arm slot might be like 15. So if they can get 18, that suddenly becomes elite. Hater's the best example. He throws from, you know, a five, five foot, like four inch release side. It's been as low as five feet at times. And he gets like 20 inches of carry at times. Average is about 18. Um, so answer the question, typically the ideal four seamer would be about 20 plus inches of carry as hard as the pitcher can possibly throw it. Ideally, you'd have a lower release height. Um, and horizontally, it doesn't really matter as much, to, to, to be honest. Uh, if anything, actually having some cut or uh, a lack of cut can kind of be advantageous. But again, that's not always super practical when you're working with their arsenal. Because if you want to add cut, you might take off, off some carry. But ideally, you'd have about 20 inches of ride, zero to two inches horizontal. Um, and that would be kind of your, your optimal four-seamer and be thrown up in the zone. There are guys like Garrett Cole who can kind of obtain both. Um, where he gets, you know, he gets 18 and a half vertical. He throws from a low five foot seven, five foot eight, five foot nine release site. And he actually gets like 12 and a half, 13 inches of carry or uh, arm side run as well. Those are a little bit more rare, but that's another kind of optimal four seamer. And, and then in terms of somebody comes in, you know, they have an average four seamer. How do you make that better? And then what are the characteristics that you might move on and say, hey, we talked on this a little bit earlier. Maybe you should throw a two seamer or a one seamer. Right. So the biggest thing, oh, sorry. Go uh, the biggest thing would be uh, release height uh, in terms of like, hey, do they cut it a little bit? Like if, you, if you're just like looking at it, they cut it a little bit. They've got like 11 inches of carry or something. And it's like 80% spin efficiency. It's like, if we turn that four seamer over, it's not even going to be good. You know what I mean? Like there, there's an element there where we're not even getting close to 16, 17 inches of carry. We've already got some natural cut on it. So that one, heck, he, he could have like, 95% spin efficiency, we'd probably just throw a two seam in that guy's hands. You know what I mean? Um, but basically, in terms of Dylan Cease is the best example. I mean, I think he went from, I, I honestly don't recall exactly, but I think in his first year in the big leagues or going through the minor leagues, he was at like 14, 15 inches of carry or something. And he started turning that sucker over um, and he was getting, you know, closer to 18 and a half, 19 inches of carry this year. So basically, Guys that throw, basically, if you were to have a four-seam fastball that had lower efficiency and you had like 16 inches of carry, you're right at the league average. If you turn that thing over and you can get an additional, you know, 20% of that active spin on that baseball, you could be looking at really an elite four-seamer. And teams, when they're scouting, those are the types of things they've got to decide player dev-wise if they think they can fix because that, that pitcher becomes different, right? So... There's kind of two ways of scouting. There's looking at the metrics and defining the current grade of it uh, or even projecting it out. And then there's, hey, this guy's fastball maybe doesn't rate well right now, but he's, you know, maybe his coach doesn't know what to do with it, you know, or he doesn't, he's got the luxury of being so good. He doesn't even need to turn it over. So those are definitely things that we, we balance out with the four seamer and, and think about development wise. Yeah. And I mean, sometimes I've heard of even guys in college that had good fastball shape that you know, it was just the, the program they were in was, you know, throw strikes low, throw strikes low. And their command was actually worse. <laughs> right. Simply because they were they were throwing a, a you know, a, a high ride four seamer low in the zone, um, which doesn't always play, obviously. Um, so I want to talk a little bit, you know, also about two seamers. And I feel that recently they, they were out of vogue for a little bit. They seem like they're coming back in vogue a little bit, but there's different things that we're looking for now with 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 two seamers. One of the more interesting articles I think I've read this this offseason was I forget who it was, maybe it was Ben Clemens over at Fangraphs, uh, had written about San Francisco in particular targeting low VAA two seamers, which I think for me on like a, a basic level like seemed counterintuitive, but then you started to think about it and it was like, all right, that makes a lot of sense. So. Are we looking for different things with two seamers or are we still looking for guys, you know, that are higher slot that get, you know, more downhill playing on, on a two seamer and, you know, get more, more sink and ride. You know, there's sure. different approaches to it. Sure. I mean, well, for, for one, some, uh, some guys will classify their two seamer 
and it'll actually have four seam movement. And sometimes that's like, I guess one thing we should talk about is like, it, it doesn't really like the only thing that matters in terms of their performance generally is how the hitter perceives the pitch. The hitter doesn't care if you call it a four seam or a two seam, sure. right? So um, that's kind of a, a separate subject. We won't get too deep into that. But basically, with the two seamer, you actually want depth on it. That's probably the biggest characteristic of how well that pitch will play outside of velocity, of course. Um, so where the four seamer, you're kind of trying to miss bats um, by basically getting them to swing underneath it. A two seamer, and again, if you look at the outcomes, it's the 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 value of the pitch is in inducing ground balls. Uh, you're not going to get now. You might if you throw a hundred or whatever, but you're not going to get uh, Blake Trinan. Uh, Grad at all, those guys aren't getting like crazy whiff rates on their sinker, but they yeah. are negating launch angle a ton. So basically, with the with the sinker, you want to more or less create as much depth uh, as you can, as is reasonable, without necessarily losing velocity by like forcing yourself to be sidearm or something. Um, and typically, the best way to create depth is going to be that seam shifted wake, um, where there's kind of a little bit, not like a ton. It depends. Dylan Tate's a guy we train who actually has like ninety to ninety two percent active spin. And he kind of has a one, a one seam variant and he gets really good uh, seam shift wake on that pitch. But that's generally the biggest thing you're looking for is killing depth. And to reasonably do that from a slot that isn't like sidearm is going to be put, putting honestly some gyro spin on the ball and more or less getting that that late action on it. So those are kind of the, the biggest differences between the four seam and the sinker are going to be, you want vertical break on the four seamer, the sinker, you basically want as little as possible. And ideally you have run on it, but you're probably not going to trade off like uh, any increase in vertical break. So getting more backspin just to capture added run, if that makes sense. Yeah, You'd no. rather like there's some sinkers that have whatever, 12 inches vertical and 18 horizontal. It might have more horizontal. That's not going to outpace that lack of vertical break. If that makes sense. So. Yeah. No, I understood. Um, all right. We talked about fastballs now. Let's move on to breaking balls um, and secondaries. Let's talk about sliders because I think that when we look at curveballs, we look at four seamers, we look at two seamers, even changeups, the, the the varieties of different types of sliders seems to be, you know, a much further scale than what we see with others. I mean, there's three or four different variations almost of sliders maybe more um, right so talk to me a little bit about that and then i guess with different movement patterns what makes them work sure um, maybe velocity whatever it might be because i feel like some of that's important too especially with this pitch sure um so the uh to get into the question of variations or whatever like basically i i define there's probably uh six but yeah there's probably like six variations that like people need to know there's the cutter, which is what Clayton Kershaw and Robbie Ray throw. Again, it can work. They throw it like 89 on average. They're also left-handed, which helps a lot. And Kershaw gets a little bit more sweep. So they call those sliders, but there are variants that are basically cutters. Next would be a, a slutter. Uh, that's basically right in between a standard slider and a cutter. So if you're as you creep, as you get more vertical break or uh, like going from a cutter, that's the one that needs to be thrown the firmest. A slutter, you can start to take peel down the brakes a little bit. The average slider is about 85. Those sliders to be good need to be like 87, 88. Those cutters to be good from a righty need to be probably like 90. Um, and then you, as you creep down, you can start to lose velocity. So after that would be the gyro. That would be the one that just has the gyro spin. Uh, you're killing depth on the pitch. So you're going to get that gravity to bring the pitch down. And uh, basically, you, it can be thrown a little bit slower than the slider, um, but still needs to be probably like at least 85. Then there's a standard slider. That's where you've got a combination of a little bit of side spin and gyro spin. That's the one that you generally see somewhere between five to nine inches of glove side action. And then you've got the really popular one, which is the sweeper. That one is the one with a lot of seam shifted wake or a lot of like transfer spin, um, generally side spin. That's the one that can honestly be thrown like 80 to 82 um, and still be extremely effective due to the fact it has a ton of glove side action. And then you've got the slurve, which is kind of more of the curveball family. Um, that's not necessarily ideal, but it can generally, if you throw it 84, it's going to be better than say a gyro slider. So those are kind of the six buckets. Um, and the best way I'd explain it is as you closer to cutter needs to be thrown firmer, slider needs to be thrown firmer, gyro starting to be able to, you know, still have to throw it hard because you don't have glove side. Standard slider is probably the one that can be thrown 85. Sweeper, you can take off a bunch of ticks. Slurve, you can take off a little bit, but Ideally, if you're at a slurve, you want to generally bring it into either a regular slider or a sweeper, especially if you already have a curveball in the arsenal. 
Um, so to answer the, the question, if it's a gyro, you want it to be thrown as hard as you can. You're just not going to have glove side action there. If it's a sweeper, you can take off more ticks to obtain that movement. That profile, to be honest, is the one that has played best uh, by, by a decent margin. Mm-hmm. But that being said, not every pitcher is going to be able to throw that. So it's a very case-by-case basis. And you've got to kind of put the pitcher in the lab, look, look at some arm angle stuff, and kind of configure, hey, which one of these is going to be best for this given pitcher? Sure. Now, when you define sort of each of those six types, is there a horizontal vertical range that they typically fall within? Um, sure. I think the tough one for people, too, if you're just looking at, you know, IVB and HB and tilt or whatever is, you know, the cutter, the slutter in that area, you know. Sure. So a cutter, the average cutter at the big league level is about eight and two, eight or inches vertical, about two inches glove side horizontal. So the way I bucket it, I'm just putting everything that has more than seven inches of vertical break and like less than eight inches of horizontal. There's your cutter. Okay. Slutter is going to be greater than four inches vertical up to seven. A lot of them fall into that category. To be honest, it's kind of DeGrom, Scherzer, um, guys like that. There's your slutter. Uh, Gyro is basically zero to four horizontal. Um, and like negative three to positive three vertical, just below mm-hmm. the slutter. And then the slider, five to nine horizontal. The sweeper is going to be 10 plus. Uh, and then the slur, basically the only difference there is you've got to have a little bit of downward action, at least like four inches of, of top spin. Now, the other thing I wanted to ask too about sweepers in particular, there's some curveballs that are called curveballs. Of course, the hitter doesn't care. That are really sweepers. So right. as we jump, we jump into curveballs now and talk about that. Where's like this range where like a slider slowly becomes a curveball in your estimation? So it's always going to come down to what the pitcher calls it. But right. like I know, like with Matt Brash, the guy broke down Brash for a best pitch. I know he calls it a slider. It's marked as a curveball. So right. I put it into the curveball bucket because I was like, there aren't that many good curveballs, frankly. Curve. Oh my guys right. don't put under it anymore. Right. It's not as popular. So I threw it into the curveball bucket with people kind of like, eh, but it's like, he calls it a slider. It's a slider. But there's a lot of curveballs that look a lot more like this. Lodolo, for one, calls it right. a curveball. Curve, you know, Lodolo's curveball, Barash's curveball, movement wise, they're not that different. So right. there's like that range where like the slider starts to really become a curveball. Sure. So. To make it simple, the average curveball at the big league level is about 10 inches downward vertical and 10 inches to the glove side. So then the average slider is zero and five. So basically, once it gets to negative five, that's going to start to resemble something closer to a curveball. So one thing you can do really, and this is how we we have a metric called stuff plus at driveline. We don't we don't like bracket it by slider, cutter, or curveball. We just bracket all of those as a breaking ball, if that makes sense. So that way they're all on the same scale. So Corey Kluber throws that amazing sweeper that I believe he still classifies as a curveball. I'm not positive, um, but like that plays as a sweeper. You know what I mean? Um, so but generally when you get into that negative five vertical territory, that's when it starts to take on more of a slur. Uh, an example of a pitcher who throws a slider that really has more curveball characteristics is Luke Jackson, where he's got like basically no horizontal component to the pitch, but he throws it extremely hard at like 86, 87, and it's got like seven inches of drop to it. Um, Tyler Matzik throws a slider, uh, that really is a slurve. So there, there's examples like that. Chris sale as well. Um, so that's kind of the dynamic there is, Hey, instead of like calling them curveballs, sliders, just call it like a breaking ball and evaluate it off of its movement. You know what I mean? And if yeah. you want the pitches to do something different, cause they, the, the reality is a curveball typically in most arsenals is kind of like a cold strike pitch, uh, for some guys they'll use it as a wipeout pitch to let these, but if you want to do that, you just need to make sure they kind of separate a good bit. But I think just looking at the velocity and movement of the pitch is actually a better way to understand uh, this like idea of what the nomenclature is. Yeah. And I think the term sweeper is important too. I, th- I honestly feel like I try to describe sweepy sliders as sweepers. If it doesn't have any vertical movement, you know, it's pretty much close to zero and it's moving, you know, 10 plus, 12 plus, then you get some of those that are just, you know, crazy that are like 14 plus. <laughs> It's a different type of pitch. All right. You know, we've done a good job even to answer, and I think, some of the later questions that I had here. The last thing I wanted to touch on, and we talked about it a little bit before I let you go, is just how are we evaluating changeup? Because I feel like maybe this is wrong. I feel like I take less away from the actual movement characteristics in a changeup 
versus just seeing it thrown, right? Like it's how do they sell it with arm speed? What's the release like? Do they sell the pitch? And then like, you know, where, where do they land it? How do they command it? So because like curveballs and changeups by and large have much lower strike rates than sliders or fastballs. Sure. Uh, it's, I'll say this. I think the, the one thing our model picks up and Dan O'Coin, I mean, to, to be honest, a, a lot of my knowledge that I'm talking about here, uh, Dan O'Coin could state it. He's, he's our head of R and D here. He, he would sound about five times as smart as me. So I've kind of stolen a lot of his stuff and learned a ton from him, but uh, a lot of the things he has in his model is going to really say that the changeup is a little bit more dependent on command. So that might be part of what, uh, when we look at that pitch relative to like breaking stuff, uh, is a little bit more difficult to see is that it may not play as much on the raw metrics compared to just like the command of the pitch, like an Ian Anderson type, where to be honest for me, it's like, he's had that pitch forever. I certainly think it's a good pitch, but like if some random minor leaguer threw that, I'd probably try to change it, to be honest. You know, like I really would if you don't give me any other context. Um, the one big thing I'll say about changeups is it just has to be relative to the fastball. So uh, if you think of like uh, like Marco Estrada or like John Means even, who John Means changeup is whatever. I don't know what's good about it, but it gets everybody out. Um, <laughs> those guys do have a lot of carry on their four-seamer. Um, so by having that carry on their four-seamer, the hitter, when they see the changeup, they're perceiving it off of that. Um, the main thing's, Metrically for the changeup, honestly, are going to be the vertical depth, that separation. If you can get to like 10, that's a bit above average. Eight is about the league average. Um, and then if you can get some velocity off of it, more than about, you know, nine miles an hour, that's also going to be advantageous. Um, I, I'm with you that it's it's tough to see, like, how does Dylan Cease just like, there's no shot Dylan Cease is taking 20 miles an hour off his changeup without slowing something down. You know, that, that if you look at like the league leaders there, it's like, you get to like 14 mile an hour separation, then it's still in C's at like four more miles an hour. So some yeah. of those things, some of those things are difficult to know how to like weigh this objective in terms of like, Hey, that guy is like arm speed's really good there or whatever. Um, I'm not doing a great job of answering this question to, no, be, no, to be frank with you, but I think, but I think it, I think it, you've done a perfect job of answering all these questions, but I think that it speaks to the difficulty of it. And I also think it speaks across the board to just the uniqueness of each pitcher and, you know, of they're all snowflakes, right? But they're trying to like evaluate them based on what they do and don't do. Right. And where they potentially can be because of certain characteristics. That's where we're ending up. It seems like we're, we're understanding if a guy does X, Y, and Z, he can be ABC. But, you know, if he does ABC, then he's going to be this, this or that, right? There's, right? there's always different ways to evaluate it. So I'll leave you on this last question, and then and then I'll let you go. Where are we going next? You know, we're, we're with, with motion capture technology and all these different, you know, metrics and systems to measure different things within physical movement, pitch movement, et cetera. What's the next frontier that, that we're getting into over the next couple of years? Because it seems like every two years things are rapidly evolving things that we didn't even think of or know the terms three years ago now are you know cemented in our vernacular so where does it go next because you're right you're right on the the front lines of that stuff so i figure if anyone's going to know that it's going to be you <laughs> sure uh so i think we're at a point I'll, I'll speak a little bit developmentally first we're at a point where uh there was an early maybe like five six years ago where, honestly when driveline kind of started getting some notoriety where people just didn't believe you could train for velocity. So when that was not a belief or it wasn't necessarily weighted that much, anybody who just was like, you know, average at their job, but pursued that had kind of an advantage on everybody. I think now we're to the point where, you know, if you look to your left or your right at your office, the main reason that person's not in the major leagues is because they didn't throw hard enough. But teams are aware of that enough now that where it's not really a competitive advantage. Sure, some teams are better at it than others, but like, as people become more inclined with it and start valuing it when they're hiring coaches, that is going to kind of diminish. Um, pitch metrics are kind of a little bit, maybe uh, there's a little bit of room there, especially with some of the seam shifted wake stuff and being able to evaluate it. That's going to probably just come down to the front office, getting that interpreted to the coaches, to be honest. There's every, there's every big league team has somebody in the front office who understands this much better than I do. But if it doesn't get to the coaches, it doesn't matter, especially if you're talking about development. So that's one thing to keep in mind in terms of, I think we're still at a point where all of this stuff matters a bit and it has the biggest return on investment. 
the big things I'd say going forward is if anybody can get feel on command currently, I mean, the, you can train command in a manner, but like, I've never seen very many guys go from like 30 grade command to like 50. They'll change the way they pitch. You know, they'll either throw more fastballs or I'm, I'm pretty sure Robbie Ray just threw it down the middle every time this year, to be honest. <laughs> like that's my, that's my opinion on that. Um, but there's ways to like improve targeting strategy that may, may seem a little bit like simplified. Um, so those are some things, but I think anybody who can like figure out how to literally train command and get some of these guys in the minor league level who throw like 95, 96 with 20 inches a ride, but don't know where it's going. That's a major advantage. And then the other thing that I personally am most interested in is any kind of like deception model. So we would talk about, you know, there's a lot of articles written about like you Sumero Petit. And again, it's kind of easy to cling on to him because it's like, why is this guy good? Well, it must be something. So it must be deception. But there's definitely an element there that currently we're not picking up uh, through the pitch metrics. And I think that's those are those are places where scouts can still be extremely valuable. Um, so that would be my biggest thing is deception. And by deception, I particularly mean like hiding the ball, things of that nature. I think they're with a lot of the technology. I think that's something that we can maybe better quantify. Because as of right now, to be honest, I would probably be more comfortable just quantifying it as like, all right, that dude just like defies every model in the world. Like Joey Lucchese, it's like, like this guy should be a triple A pitcher. And like for three years, he's been an average big league starter, which is worth a lot. Yeah. You know, uh, but how can we figure that out? Uh, maybe w- when they're just out of the draft, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and then the last, last thing I'll leave you with is one of the biggest things I think we we've talked about it kind of a little bit, maybe never like literally del- uh, alluding to it, but the, the athletes training history. And to be honest, how good was the athletes coach like coming up? Yeah. Cause if they, if you're at a program that understands the value of vertical break and you were still cutting your heater, guess what? You got to, you know, give that coach some credit. Like he's probably good at his job and that guy's still not gaining carry, probably less of a likelihood. Whereas if it's at another program or the athlete hasn't even tried to throw hard before, uh, you know, there's some room for growth for growth there. So those are kind of my main two things in terms of development that I think are kind of probably more on the scouting side, honestly, that wow. I think uh, are kind of the next frontiers, at least in my estimation. It's it's not two different sides of the house. It's all one big circle. It's just a matter of how it's communicated. And I think that's the goes back to your point before. It's it's the competitive advantage is the ability to have your your analysts, your scouts, your coaching staff, um, and your PD folks sort of, you know, all in the loop and and sharing information and having a you know a consistent message. Uh, and it's it's hard to do that. I think it's hard to do that in any organization. You don't have to be in professional baseball to understand how communication and personalities and everything else can conflict so totally understand it but chris thank you for joining us today you can find him on twitter at langan tots 13 that's l-a-n-g-i-n tots 13 chris thanks again for joining us my pleasure thank you so much for having me